The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P. Nate and Pootie up in Garage Mahal. Just living the dream, I guess you would say. Living the dream. Living the, living the dream. I even dressed up for you today, Chris. Nate's in a tie. I'm in a full suit, if you guys are wondering. I'm not Untrue. Actually, I'm, not, Untrue. I'm in jeans and what a sweater? Would you call this a sweater? Sweatshirt. Sweatshirt? Yeah, sure, I, works. I'm going with sweatshirt. I don't know why. This is great radio. Great We're radio. describing what we look like. It's <laughs> fun. I, we just like to give a visual for all the listeners at home. I'm also <laughs> drinking homemade Starbucks. It's in a Starbucks cup, so it counts, yeah. Works. I love it. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Did a funeral today. I wasn't super close with them, but you get to preach the gospel to non-Christians, which is always my favorite part of uh, doing funerals. So. Funerals or weddings? What would you rather do? Well, I mean, a wedding is nicer, right? It's like the, the start of something new. But any wedding that I do and any funeral that I do, I, I insist on being able to preach the gospel, right? And that's kind of a stipulation, whether it's somebody in the community who's phoning me for either, right? But I do like preaching the gospel at funerals more than anywhere else because you can just preach it so powerfully with literally with a corpse right in front of people, right? Like people live their lives not thinking at all about death, right? There's a a line in uh, the movie, terrible movie, but great line, Vanilla Sky. Remember that? Tom Cruise? I never actually saw it. There's this great line in the movie where he says, like every young person, I secretly thought that I was going to live forever. Just because we don't think about our own mortality, we don't think about death, and everybody is generally so busy and entertained that we don't think about big questions. And I would say that's one of the biggest problems with like Christians trying to be evangelistic is that there's most people are just apathetic to it, right? Anyway, at a funeral, it's right in front of them. They're forced to think about it, and I think it's it's just easier to kind of get through the hard heart. That's good. Yeah. I actually was talking about this by God's the other, grace. By God's grace. <laughs> the other day, I actually thought about this for this morbid thought that I just want to share with you all now is that I think I've actually crossed the threshold in age where now I realize I'm going to attend more funerals of people I know than weddings of people I know. And so I'm like on my hands, I'm like trying to think of Lord willing, how many more weddings do I think I'll attend? Probably seven or eight, mm-hmm. 10 maybe in right, my life. Right. Of That's the thing about the church me. though, right? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like in the church, your, your peers aren't just your age, right? So there'll always be like 20 year olds in the church who are getting married. And generally speaking, you're a pretty social guy. You're an active leader in the church. So you'll get a few more. Yeah. But a lot of those I'm going to say no to. And then like, there's going to be that knob nah, good. I'll send the gift, which let's be honest, that's really what they want. Um, and then the other part, like, whereas like funerals, I'm like, I'm starting to gear up for like, I got to get my funeral face on because like they're coming and they're coming lots and they're going to have more I thought more what more. you were going to say is the realization you had is that you're actually closer to your own funeral than you are your own birth. I've been like that for about 10 <laughs> years though. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> oh, morbid thoughts. Well, we are we are the Rebels. Uh, this is the Rebel Podcast, and we are part of the Reformed Rebel Network. There's been some great new stuff happening with the Rebel Alliance. Uh, we have something super exciting. It's getting edited right now, so I can't spill the beans for you, but it's uh, it's going to be super exciting. Actually, I guess we've already spilled the beans on that. They know what's coming. Yeah, oh, I think people yeah, know yeah, already. Sorry about that. So Erica Van Brimmer and uh, and Sandra Rollett have put together a, a feasting guide for Lent, which is super, super exciting. So make sure you check out the website and check us out on Facebook for that. Apprentice Theologians has launched with, uh, with Blaine and Lila, and they did a great job uh, this past week talking about fashion. Even yesterday. I got some tips. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I was thinking of you, Pooty. Uh, you know, they're talking about modesty, and I thought, you know, there are are times when you're when your tops are a bit cropped I'm a, little, I'm a little bit risque <laughs> um, and then yesterday grant had ad robles from the fight laugh feast network on and they talked about social justice and it was awesome too so anyway lots of great stuff happening on the network make sure you check us out on facebook and if you want to get back to the ministry at all patreon.com slash reformed rebel and that's where you can find that out um, we're going to transition right now we're going to start off with uh, rebel news got a couple things here for you. I want to get your thoughts. First, so the the big event as the uh, our American brethren will say the biggest event in the world even though the Olympics, Super Bowl, World Cup all trumpet like yeah. that's beside the, the point. NHL anyway. All-Star game. No. Okay, no. sorry. <laughs> so the Super Bowl <laughs> happened, but really what happened was the Super Bowl halftime show. Right. And so it's been pretty mixed reviews, so I want to. Speaking get... of modesty, <laughs> Apprentice Theologians <laughs> dropped right at the right time. I want to. I want to get your thoughts on what you thought of the Super Bowl halftime show in a culture that we have that talks specifically about empowering women and women's rights. Just then to see women objectified, Two scantily clad women shaking it in front of millions and millions of people. Okay, so first to not start off negatively, I will say this: J Lo is fifty. Fifty, yeah, yeah. So I will say this, if I am as comfortable as she is being mostly naked in front of millions of people at the age of 50, I will feel as though I've done something right. Like, <laughs> like ethically, there's, there's some problems there, but like, let's be honest, I've kept pretty fit. So that's one thing. Yeah. By the time you're 50, she's like, probably will still look fine though. I know. And I'll look way weathered. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In all honesty, this is just the same hypocrisy. This is this is why Ricky Gervais called out Hollywood, right? This is the same sort of thing is American culture. We've had a couple years of the Me Too stuff and, you know, toxic masculinity and everything. Like, J-Lo is a great singer and she's a great dancer. Shakira is an even better dancer and an even better singer. Why do they need to be naked while they're doing what they're doing? And the reason, and so I'll answer that question for you. <laughs> the reason they need to be is because that's what America expects. So all of this Me Too nonsense and all of this, you know, toxic masculinity and empowerment of women stuff is all nonsense when you have two powerful, right? When you think about like fame and influence and all that kind of stuff, two powerful women getting up there doing exactly what all the, you know, the Neanderthal guys in uh, in America want to see. I just think it's hilarious that, you know, those are the same people who get up on stage and lecture and talk about how little girls can be everything they need to be and they don't need to be objectified and they're beautiful just the way they are. And then they're going to get up like that and shake it like that. The disconnect is unbelievable. Yeah, I, that's kind of how I thought about it too. I, I sat watching the halftime show recognizing that they were doing a good job for what they were intending to do. Like the dancing. Yeah, was, the choreography was, was great. It was, it was good. Like my two overwhelming thoughts are when did 
did when did it become socially acceptable to not sing when you're performing? And I was just like, that was kind of annoying. But that's just an annoying that thing. Was, uh, what was Jessica Simpson's sister's name? Do you remember that whole lip syncing? <laughs> oh, like, what was her scandal? Name? Jessica Simpson's sister is what I would call her. <laughs> <laughs> I forget her name too. But is remember, Taylor, she was on SNL. Taylor and, Swift is I don't know. Is that her sister? I don't know. They all look the same to me. <laughs> Avril Lavigne, I think. Um, but yeah, remember she like lip sank on, uh, SNL, on SNL and she yeah. got like, you know, just destroyed in the media for it. But Not anymore. Not yeah. anymore. But the other thing I thought was, was very interesting is that like kind of what, what you've been saying is that the last two years specifically have been very much about like, let's not objectify women. Let's, let's treat women equal to men. And then JLo and Shakira come out. One Shakira is barely clothed the entire time with millions of young men watching. Right. How are we not supposed to think certain thoughts in that, in that area? Then JLo, her, she starts her dance or at a very early part in her dance was on a pole. Yeah. Which let's be honest, everybody who watches pole dancing thinks of one thing. Right. And it's like, you know, I've never been to a strip club, but I know that's what happens. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you're now purposely doing that. And JLo's daughter was on the stage. I know. And it's like, that to me is like, you're sending completely the wrong message to your preteen daughter about like what it is to be a powerful woman. Right. And it's like, you've kind of gone up there, grabbed the microphone, belted it in front of millions of people, crushed it because she actually has a good voice. Yeah. She's still danced, still did all that stuff without any of the sexual stuff. And everybody would have been like, J-Lo's amazing. Right. Instead, what you did was what, like, my voice isn't really worth it anymore. My dancing isn't really up to snuff compared to whatever. look at how great a shape I've stayed in. Exactly. Look <laughs> at these abs and the six pack and I'm going to show off everything I have. Right. And then the funny thing is they flip to a, a scene in the crowd and her husband's out there dancing. I was thinking about like me as a husband. If my wife was up there doing that, I'd be like, where's the blanket? And I'd be carrying her <laughs> on stage. And I don't mean that because like my wife would never do that. But I mean, like, it's one of those things where I was just like, this is so frustrating. Yeah. No, I hear you. We've gotten a lot of I would say pushback when we criticize things like the Me Too movement and some of the feminist silliness going on in the culture right now. But this is why, because all it is, and and we you know we often get criticized for using the the term virtue signaling, but this is exactly what it is. When when you're going to get up there and talk about how empowered women are and how they're not just objects and all that kind of stuff, but then you're going to go and act like you're an object. Then all your big long speeches at the, you know, Hollywood things, they don't mean anything because all it is is virtue signaling because everybody is one way, you know, with the microphone and another way when the music's on, so to speak. Right. This is honestly what it made me think of. In the book of Daniel, you have the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And it was like, whenever the music played, people had to go and bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're like, "There's, there's something about like, you know, all of these... Israelites who are in exile, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the only exiled Israelites there. They were just the only ones who didn't bow, right? And so it's like, how do you get people to do things that they know are, are ethically wrong as you put on the music, right? And, and that's all I could think about is like the virtue signaling, you know, uh, high-powered feminist women are the ones on the microphone. But then when the music plays, right, their true colors come out and it shows that what they were saying on the microphone is just virtue signaling. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, I know you had one other piece of Rebel News, so let's keep going here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you brought Me Too, because right. uh, we have another person who came out um, that said they were Me Too'd. But this time, there's a bit of a spit on it this time. Okay. And it was Johnny Depp. Really? So Johnny Depp, 
his wife, Amber Heard. Now there's proof come out. The Daily Mail has reported that she has verbally abused him, physically abused him. And basically some of the tweets, if you read them, to the point where Johnny had actually called police and stuff like that to stop her from hurting him. There's like recordings. Now they haven't been released because they're actual evidence now of like him pleading with her to stop and basically her making fun of him for not being a man enough to stop her. It's interesting now that the Me Too movement, I'm not going to criticize the whole thing at this point, but now it's to the point where it's like, well, now the light shining on anybody who's abusing an Amber Heard, who's a name, right. is now being... Me not, too. Me too, yeah, I guess yeah, is the right way where it's like for her husband not being man enough to stop her from abusing him. Like, I don't know how to take this. So what's your thoughts on this? Oh, man. Uh, Poor Johnny. Well, you know, I don't have much love for Johnny Depp. I think he's a great actor and I like a lot of the movies that he's in, but I don't have much love for him. He's been as as vocally liberal as as anybody Okay, so I have tons of thoughts going through my head right now, and I'll just say some of them, and I'll probably get in trouble for some of them because I'm going off the cuff here. But you remember a couple years ago after Trump first got elected and he got criticized at an award show for saying he's going to be the second actor to assassinate a president in in U.S. history or something like that? And he took a lot of flack for it, as he should have. But part of me is just like, really? Do you know how to handle a gun? Like, <laughs> would you have been able to take Trump, right? Like, like you're getting, right, he's getting beat up by his wife. I don't know what his wife looks like, but, and you know what? This might've been like, I don't know if she's like beating him up or if he's as the man not wanting to fight back. I don't know. I don't know the situation. Part of me is like, that's really soft of him. And then there's the other side of me that's like, it'll be interesting to see how culture reacts to this because it's been toxic masculinity for so long. And I think one of the other things that we've said is that there's a toxic femininity as well, right? And I think the toxic femininity can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. But I actually think that what's toxic about masculinity, abuse and sexual assault and all those kinds of things, it's toxic. You know, that's the sort of masculinity that the Bible would condemn as well. But being strong and being assertive and being a leader and all those kinds of things, that's actually good masculinity. And I remember Doug Wilson saying one time that when God was speaking to Eve after the fall and he said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. God was making a statement there about who rules and the way in which he's created the world. He was stating there an inescapable concept right? That male leadership will rule and men will rule over women in the world that he made. The question is what kind of masculinity, what kind of men rule? Will it be effeminate men or will it be strong men? And I think what one of the things you're seeing, and so I will, I will place a a bunch of blame on Johnny Depp. This is what toxic masculinity looks like weak-willed, right? And you think about this, okay, so here's a woman who's abusing a man and we can laugh at it all we want in terms of like, oh, what a wuss. But this is what culture has been grooming for a long time. Look at Homer Simpson. Look at Everybody Loves Raymond. Look at the dads on sitcoms and in in popular culture. They're spineless, weak-willed men who are afraid of their wives and let their wives lead. And that's the kind of masculinity that we now have ruling the world, right? And that's the kind of masculinity that turns femininity toxic as well. I think that's a really good point when we, if you bring up the 
cultural aspect where men are being basically trained to be submissive to their wives. We watch shows like The Simpsons. We watch shows like Family Guy. Those are like shows that people grew up with. But if you even look at like shows like Seinfeld, which I love Seinfeld, yeah. but George and Jerry are not men no. in that show. Um, you watch They're shows boys. <laughs> Friends where the successful people in that show Rachel overcomes everything. Right. Monica, Monica is the Mo- strongest willed one in the whole show. Yeah. Exactly. Phoebe's an independent, lovely spirit. Joey's an idiot. Chandler's an idiot. Ross is an idiot. Right. You know what I mean? Even though they have good careers, they're idiots. How I Met Your Mother, same thing to a lesser extent. You get these shows that are reinforcing a stereotype that shows the woman as the dominant focus in the home. There's a, there's a saying that people always say that men are head of the head of the household, but women are the neck and the neck controls the head. Which like, so really the neck is the most mm-hmm. important thing. It's one of those like harmless sayings that I've even heard in churches. If you play that out where, yeah, the woman is the one that actually probably gets most like implements most of the stuff that the head thinks and does. But it's one of those things where it's like we we're so afraid even in the church to say men are the head. Right. Uh, You know what I mean? Men are the head of the household. We all go as the man goes in the house. And I think it's one of those things where it's like we're so afraid now of feminine of being labeled as a misogynist or being labeled as somebody who is anti-women or abusive to women or anything like we've even been accused of being like bigots and exactly right like on this podcast just for putting a biblical view of manhood and womanhood into place and the funny thing is like since the Me Too movement started, what, 2017? Yep. Domestic violence has actually rose. Yeah. This isn't solving the problem. This is actually hurting. Like, it's it's exasperating the problem to the point where everything is now abuse. And it's, right, yes. And it's not because, and please don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying that we think men should be abusive or domineering or any of those kinds of things. But what we're saying is that when you neuter men by giving them examples of what they should be as soft weak-willed, spineless followers, then what you're doing is you're asking men to essentially unload everything that makes them a man. And then, quite honestly, that's where weird things like sexual perversions and stuff come out because men aren't being true to the way God made them. God made them to be assertive. God made them to be leaders. God made them to be strong. God made them to be protective. But now it's misogynistic to be protective. Now it's misogynistic to think you're a provider. So all of the things that God says men ought to do is now considered misogynist. So what are you doing? You're forcing men to not be the things that God created men to be. And in doing so, you take away all of the natural things God gives them, and they're given over to unnatural desires and lusts and that sort of thing. Just to bring this full circle, I hope this doesn't sound like we're being you know hard on women and easy on men. If anything, this means like we're hard on men because I would even go back to like Shakira and J-Lo and what kind of, and I'm not saying anything specific about them. I don't know their specific story. But I've counseled a lot of women. Well, see, Jenny was from the block. <laughs> Don't worry about it. She used to have a little. Now, <laughs> now she, she has, has a lot. lot. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I've counseled a lot of people and I've counseled a lot of women. And one thing I can tell you is that more often than not, women who feel the need to exploit their sexuality and to get the attention of guys in unhealthy ways like that are generally women who did not have a father who showed them good fatherly affection, right? So it was either perverted fatherly affection or no fatherly affection or fatherlessness, right? And so again, when you take the man out of the role that he's supposed to play in the family 
everybody suffers because of it. The wife suffers, the husband suffers, the kids suffer, right? The men don't grow up knowing what a a man is supposed to look like. The girls grow up feeling an incessant need to please men because they never got the affection of their fathers. Wives grow to try to usurp the role, the God-given role that God gave to the man. So as the father goes, so goes the family. And as the family goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the culture. So this is a big deal. Yeah, we should probably do an episode on just fatherlessness in general somewhere down the road because the stats and the and the research is astronomical to yeah. say what like the outcome for both men and women is when that when the father's absent so yeah, let's totally park that one and All remind right. us sometime in the future write that down we're going to transition into our episode for today so we're in the middle of this series called no other gospel And what we're doing is we're trying to uh, shine a light on some of the false gospels that have reared their ugly heads in the church. And this comes from Galatians chapter 1 when uh, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And he's writing to them because it says that there have been some who have troubled them and distorted the gospel of truth to them, right? And he say, he goes on to say, not that there is another gospel, there's only one gospel, but some people can trouble you and distort the truth. And so there are no other gospels because the gospel means good news. There's only one gospel that saves, and it's the gospel of free grace. But there are these perversions of the gospel that have made their way into the church, and we've been talking about them the last couple of weeks, uh, exposing them and talking about kind of where they've infiltrated the church and the effect that they have on the church. Yeah? Amen. All right. So that's what we're talking about. So we started off, we we were talking about the Word of Faith movement and the uh, prosperity gospel. Universalism. We talked last week, yeah, about universalism and pluralism. This week, we're going to start off with, uh, we're going to call this the false gospel of Pelagianism. If that's a word that's not familiar to you, it's coined from the guy Pelagius, who is a monk who lived in the late 300s and early 400s AD. So Pelagianism is named after him. It was actually condemned by several church councils, and he was excommunicated in 418. So, you know, you know. So the the name itself is obviously getting its uh, getting its rep from a bad guy. But I don't think that there are many churches who would affectionately hold the term Pelagian anymore. However, Pelagianism and its ugly step cousin, semi Pelagianism, I think, are very much alive and well in the church. So let's talk about what Pelagius taught. First of all, he taught that human beings are born innocent. There's no such thing as original sin or inherited sin. He believes that God... Red flags all over the place. Yeah, red flags. Um, He believed that God creates every human soul directly, and therefore every human soul comes into the world free from sin. There's no such thing as original sin. Adam's transgression does not result in a sinful nature that's passed down to all of humanity. And this is sort of the, the foundation of Pelagianism. He also emphasizes the freedom of the human will. And he essentially taught that when we sin, it's a result of our own conscious choice of evil over good. When you say it all like that, it sounds heretical to most of our Christian ears. But when you think about this point, what he's essentially saying is that we're born innocent and we have the freedom to choose to do good or evil. And if you just take that 
I think he's actually describing most North American Christians or what they believe, right? When you think about, you know, a sermon on the sovereignty of God or the the doctrines of grace or talking about Calvinism, Calvinism is a bad word in a lot of uh, Christian churches in North America. And the reason is because most of us cling to the Pelagian idea that man has autonomous free will. And it's unthinkable that God would cause us to do certain things because then we're like robots and we have no free will and we elevate free will over all other things. So I think the idea of Pelagianism is still very much alive and well in the church. I 100% agree with it. The North American church is like pervasively Arminian at its core. Most churches are Arminian in practice fundamentally. It's not something they would necessarily advertise or necessarily preach, but... Um, or, or even necessarily know, right? So yeah, like we, we throw out the terms like Calvinism and Arminianism, but there's lots of people, lots of Christians, good, good like God-fearing Christians who just don't know those terms. But by default, they would fall into that Arminian mindset that there is free will and we chose God. Yeah, exactly. And right there is a problem in our, I think in our church, in our churches, the first part, but the plagiarism directly refutes what the Bible says about our state and our nature. Like you think about Ephesians where it says you were dead. Plagiarism, no, you're neutral. And then right. your choices made you either dead or alive, right. which would fundamentally say that they, like a plagiarist would believe that they can earn some manner of, of salvation just through their actions because they can become better than neutral. Right. I think most would still say they need God to save them, but like they would choose to activate that grace, which again, strictly is not what the Bible says. Right. And I think that's where, so that's where semi-Pelagianism kind of comes in. And so semi-Pelagianism was first coined that phrase in the fifth century by a guy named John Cassian, uh, who was a church leader in France. And it kind of takes this middle of the road approach. So if Pelagian said that there's no such thing as total depravity, right? There's no such thing as original sin and total depravity. Semi-Pelagianism would say we're depraved, but not totally, right? We're tainted by sin, but not to the extent that we can't cooperate with God's grace somehow. And I think this is kind of where most undefined Christians lie. This is the gospel that has been purported at like Billy Graham crusades, right? Like, you know, and and, and I don't, you know, a lot of good things happen under those sorts of crusades, but it's a, it's a free will man-centered gospel where it all hinges on this choice, right? And if you make that choice then you're in. And in fact, there are a lot of like subsequent crusades by Billy Graham Ministries and other people who came down after him who that was the whole thing. You say this prayer, you do this thing and you're in. I think what's missing at the very center of kind of the heresy of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, or we would just say kind of the false idea of Arminianism is this idea that salvation is something that we choose, not something that happens to us. And this comes down to, we'll just throw out another term for you. It's called monergism. Is salvation monergistic or synergistic? Meaning, is salvation God acting or is salvation God acting and us acting simultaneously? And the picture you can use of this is, uh, I think I first heard this by Mark Driscoll. And he said, the semi-Pelagian, the Arminian, right? What they would say is that God stoops and puts his hand down And we reach our hand up and grab God's hand, and then he pulls us out of the muck and the mire. Whereas 
monergism says, no, 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 we're not reaching for God. We're not looking up at God. We're looking down at our shoes, pretending God doesn't exist. If we ever look up, it's to spit on him. And he reaches down, grabs us by the scruff of our neck and yanks us out. Right. Or here's another famous analogy. And and I've heard Billy Graham use this one. God is throwing you a life preserver. You're drowning, right? You're drowning. This is the one I've heard. And, and God has thrown you a life preserver. All you have to do is grab it. That's not a good example of, of salvation either. The, the example of salvation is you were in the water drowning, and then you did drown, and you died. <laughs> and Jesus dove into the water, pulled you out, and resuscitated your corpse, right? Like, that's the picture of salvation. And I think the reason that so many people have allowed these the infiltration of, of free will and the infiltration of sort of cooperation with God's grace into their understanding of salvation is because at the end of the day, they don't want to surrender free will. And I think the, the, the kind of root sin of this is the pride of, of wanting ha- to have something to do with their own salvation, even if it's just a choice, right? I think you're absolutely bang on with those last two points. I often say the reason people fall into these types of heresies is simply a lack of understanding of God's sovereignty in all things. They fail to understand that God is sovereign in all of election. So not like those who don't come and those who do come, he's sovereign in all of it. It's a failure to understand that your state prior to God regenerating was completely depraved, completely separated him to the point where you not only just didn't know God existed, you hated him. Right. You hated him. So in those analogies, I always like to, I actually talked about this in my small group recently, the analogy of God reaching down and grabbing you. The real biblical picture in that analogy would be us us stabbing, kicking, biting, doing everything yeah, we can to, to get away get from grabbed. that hand. Yeah, that's right. And God, because his grace is irresistible, scoops us up, grabs us despite all of yeah, our fighting against and us and pulls us out, yeah. which obviously doesn't play really well with the idea that a dead man can't fight back in the first <laughs> place. But that's the idea of that like right. of that um, thing. And I think you're bang on by the fact that when you boil this down, people just don't want to take they don't want to say that it's completely outside of them that they made some choice because we we all want and so it's original sin we all want the chance to have some part in our salvation i remember before i was a calvinist we would argue in the car to the point where our wives <laughs> who weren't our wives at the time would tell us to stop talking yeah you remember like they're just <laughs> yeah. like you guys, guys are gonna we're fight. starting the movie <laughs> or whatever right? and and my whole objection to calvinism was what was it if you remember it was i remember choosing right and it was nothing experiential to do with, exactly i remember thinking i want to do this not realizing that god had already regenerated me to the point where i could make that choice and think that i had made that choice but like it's the fundamental fact is i didn't want to take away the five percent or the two percent or the one percent or whatever percent i wanted to add to my own salvation away because i remember using that language too where you're like i'm fine like it's 99 percent god but i made a real choice exactly right i had to access it right <laughs> yeah that's right and so a couple things I want to make sh- make sure we're clear on. So number one, I want to make clear that we do believe that there are real choices. Of course. We're not arguing that we're simply robots. Like, you know, we're not arguing for fatalism here. And we're not arguing that there's not a real choice. The question is, does the choice come before or after salvation? That's the main point. So the, the area of study, right? We talk a lot about eschatology here. Eschatology is just the study of the eschaton, right? The, the last thing. Theology is simply the study of God, theos. The term soteriology is the study of salvation and the order of salvation in particular. So the question is, okay, most of us would say, 
a non-Christian does not believe in God, right? So they need to be made to believe in God, and then they need to be told that they're a sinner, and then as they recognize that they're a sinner, then they need to make a choice, and when they make that choice and in faith they come to God and repent of their sins, then God gives them a new heart. That's kind of the North American semi-Pelagian gospel. But we would say that a proper soteriology simply states that regeneration precedes faith, right? So what we mean by that is that God saves you before you make the choice. The choice isn't what saves you. That God's free grace is what saves you. And so places we would go for this is in John chapter 3, John's having a conversation with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is asking him questions and he says to Nicodemus that you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that because he's like, well, how can you crawl back into your mother's womb? And Jesus is essentially saying, no, no, no you don't understand. And, he, and, and then that's he, gross. Yeah, and that's gross. And Jesus goes on to basically, he compares the spirit of God to the wind. And he says, just like you can't see the wind, you don't know what it's doing, but you can hear it. And the analogy he's using, he's, he's, he's continuing this metaphor of new birth. And essentially, even that voice thing, I, I actually, uh, a person in our small group used this analogy the other day. And they said, just like you had nothing to do with your first birth, You have nothing to do with your second birth. But you know how when a baby is first born, the first thing they do is cry out for their mother, right? And and in, in fact, the first thing they do is cling to their mother, latch to their mother. But that happens after birth. And so just like that, after new birth, the first thing we do is cry out for God, cling to God, run to God, choose God. And so new birth is that moment of regeneration when God gives you. So this is going back to Ezekiel 36. This is, I'll take out the heart of stone. I'll put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. All of that language is what God does to us. It's not talking about any sort of cooperation with God's grace. There's no consent on God's part in this. He takes out the heart of uh, flesh and he puts in a heart of stone. That's the picture of new birth. That's the picture of regeneration. The other place that uh, I think we would go with this is in in Ephesians. You've already mentioned Ephesians chapter 2. It starts off by, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Verse 4 says, but we are made alive together with Christ. And it's in verse 8, which is the key kind of verse to what I'm about to say. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And most Christians who would believe in Arminian gospel or a semi-Pelagian gospel would say, yeah, not a result of works. I get it. I don't earn my salvation. That's not the works he's talking about. He's not talking about good works there. The works he's talking about is the choice, is the faith, right? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, how does that faith come? It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So you didn't examine the evidence and choose to believe in God. God gave you the gift of faith and the gift of faith comes at the moment of new birth, at the moment of regeneration. And that's when you had faith. That's when you chose God. That's the difference in what I would say is a, the accurate biblical gospel and this distortion. And I'll be uh, a bit more clear on that in a second. The last analogy I just want to say, so you have the new birth analogy. You had nothing to do with your first birth, nothing to do with your second birth. The resurrection analogy, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, made alive together with Christ. And the third one comes from 2 Corinthians 4, where it says, the God who said, let there be light, right? Talking about creation. Again, the world had nothing to do with its own creation. Light was not consenting to God creating it, right? Um, he, He who said, let there be light has shone gospel light into your heart. 
And so what is salvation? What is regeneration? What is that new birth? It's the moment when God says, let there be light speaking it into our hearts. It's illumination. It's regeneration. It's that, that moment of new birth. So those are the analogies that the New Testament uses. And it just doesn't leave room for this, this idea of cooperation with God's grace. It's funny that we, we would look at this heresy and think of like the fact that this seems like a modern thing in our modern churches, but the book of Galatians specifically references this in the early church, right? Like, yes, it's, and it's funny. This is, this has been a problem since the moment Christianity started, where people started thinking that sounds too good to be true. Therefore I have to do something to earn it. Right. It leads into all sorts of problems. We're going to talk about two kinds of ways people fall off the edge next week in, in terms of like taking this too far either way. But like, it's funny how very early on the apostles had to deal with this idea of like earned salvation. And it's like, no, that's not the point. And so they, they reiterate the point that not only did the cross accomplish your salvation, it also, Jesus actually was buying the faith for you to have to access it, to like, to believe it. You know what I mean? It's like all of that was accomplished on the cross. When you have a proper view of salvation, you have a bigger view of the cross, right? Yeah. If, if I was looking at the cross and being like, you know what? Jesus did 95% of the work and I did five of it because I believed it. Yep. My view of the cross is smaller than if I thought God did everything. Right. And so it's one of those, anything, anytime you're, you're faced with a theological choice, the one that makes God more glorious and more big and more powerful is the right answer. Right. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Very simply. Yeah. The one that makes, gives more glory to God is the correct answer. Right. Again, this is what I kind of want to be clear on. So we might have some Arminian brothers who are listening to this and saying, I think he's calling my understanding of the gospel a false gospel. And that's not exactly what we're doing. There's, a, there's, a, slight, there's a slight nuance here. And here's the difference, right? We're talking about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. So, so full-on Pelagianism completely disregards the fact of original sin right? It's been condemned by church councils, right? So Pelagianism is in fact heresy. He, Pelagian, Pelagius, was in fact excommunicated and they excommunicated him on the, solely on the basis of Romans 5 in the idea of, of uh, original sin. So verse 12 of Romans 5 says that sin entered through one man and death through sin. And this was the death that came to all people because all sinned. Right. Verse 15 of Romans 5 says many died by the trespasses of one man, referring to Adam. Verse 16 says the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation for all. Verse 17, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people. And verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So on the basis of a very clear understanding of Romans 5, Pelagianism was condemned because it neglected original sin. Semi-Pelagianism understood original sin, understood that um, we were tainted by sin, but not that we were totally depraved. So what it would say is, yes, we're all sinful, but we're still not so sinful that we can't choose God. Okay? That is actually heresy. And I would say that most Arminians are actually semi-Pelagians. Now, we're not saying that the Arminian gospel is heresy because what actually Arminians believe is that total depravity is true, that man is incapable of choosing God, except the one thing they do is they still say that the choice to follow God precedes regeneration. And the way they get around that is by something called provenient grace. So they believe at the moment of your hearing the gospel, God gives you just enough grace, not saving grace, but just enough grace to sort of cancel out the sin that would make you incapable of choosing God just long enough to have you make a real choice. 
that's the Arminian gospel that we would say it's not heresy. I think it's wrong, but it's not heresy. But here's what I would say. Show me where provenient grace is in the Bible, right? I, I just don't, I don't see it there. So when we're talking about this as a false gospel, we're specifically talking about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. But my understanding is that most Christians who call themselves Arminian are actually semi-Pelagians if they looked at the differences in the nuanced words. And we're saying that's a distorted gospel. We're not saying you're, you're not a Christian because you didn't believe the gospel. We're not saying that. We're saying you, like the Galatians that Paul is writing to, who he assumes are brothers, who are, he assumes are Christians, but he says that some are troubling you by distorting the gospel of grace. Mm. And we would say that people who are, who are being taught an Arminian gospel are being taught a distorted truth. That's why we think that this is so important. Because like you said, this gives glory to God, Amen. right? The, the idea that salvation is all of him and all of grace. Just really quickly, because I'm sure you, you get this all the time, is what does this actually just mean for us in terms of free will? Do we then not have free will? Because that becomes the question. How do you answer that when people ask you that? I say yes. So do we have free will? Yes. Is God sovereign in election? Yes. And I don't argue it because... The Bible doesn't make any qualms for that. So I don't need to wrestle with why that is and how that is and how God works that out because I just trust that God is sovereign and I do what the Bible says. Right. Um, so to answer that question, it's probably seems like a super big cop out to, no, no, I, to I, be, but like that's, that's how the Bible answers that question. It just says yes. And if anybody's getting upset with Chris for that answer, you have to get upset with Spurgeon too. Cause like Chris is just following in the footsteps of the Prince of Preachers and, and Spurgeon famously said when dispute arises between, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially he says when dispute arises between man's responsibility and the sovereignty of God, I don't argue the points. The Bible clearly affirms both. And since they don't argue in scripture, neither should they in our churches. And so I think that's a great point. The point here is what does that do to our free will? I don't know. You're not God. I'm not God. The Bible clearly affirms that we make real choices, right? That what we do matters and that we're responsible for the things that we do. But it also very, very strongly affirms that God is sovereign over all things. Sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from him knowing the heart of the king is a stream in the hands of God. Proverbs 16, like all these things, he turns it whichever way he wills, right? All those things are are true. God is sovereign. He grants saving faith to some, not to all. That's his sovereign choice. This is all Romans 9 stuff, but we still make a real choice. And how those two things marry, we're not going to know. That's a Deuteronomy 29, 29 things, right? That's uh, what God has revealed to us is for us and our children, but what he hasn't revealed to us are the secret things that belong to God. And so we don't know, but the reality is, is that you had nothing to do with your salvation. I had nothing to do with my salvation. Chris had nothing to do with his salvation. It's all free grace. And anything we add to it, including our own choice, is adding to the free grace of God and not something the Bible permits us to do. Amen. All right. Anything else you want to sign off with before we wrap this up? No, that's that was great. All right. Figured that. We'll see you next week. And next week, we're going to take on uh, uh, legalism and antinomianism. So uh, come on back. <laughs>